0: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the
2: website, SolidarityBreakfast.org.au
5: Solidarity forever!
2: Good morning, everybody. And it is, it's a beautiful morning. Hello, Rebecca, how are
0: you? Yes, I'm very good this morning. I I enjoyed, just as I was ringing the doorbell, I see the sun coming up. (laughs) Well, it had already been up for a while, but just, yeah. Yeah, the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful morning,
2: beautiful morning, and uh, and if you're on podcast, of course you you are sans beautiful morning, but you're also going to be part of our community listening to the things that we're doing. Uh, the uh, we've uh, got a report to kick off the program about the launch that was held on Thursday for the Freedom Fortilla sail for justice, they're going off to Manus uh, and uh, I'll leave uh, Izzy who is one of the organisers to explain what's going on. It was actually a great little event, it was down by the uh, sea at the end of Latrobe Street at the bottom of the Border Force building it were, and it was a beautiful night and there was lots of music, lots of chat, lots of food, lots of people, uh, people power stuff so uh, we'll start it off with a little bit of community action.
6: Alright, welcome everybody to South for Justice. I'd just like to acknowledge we're standing on Aboriginal land, land of the Kulin Nations, the Wurundjeri people, the land and sea. Um, sovereignty has never been ceded and we pay our respects to mob past, present and future. And you know, until there's justice in this country, we need to keep on fighting. So... Big up for the mob whose land we're standing on and for all the mob whose land we're gonna pass through and water we're gonna pass through on this big journey. So um, yeah, I'm Izzy from South for Justice and a few other random projects. And um, yeah, thank you for everybody coming down today uh, to launch the campaign. This is the beginning of hopefully a big movement, a big movement for freedom, a big movement that addresses a whole lot of interconnected issues. and. Something that will bring us all together. So, I don't know if people need a little bit of history, but um, back in 2013, we did a Freedom Flotilla um, for West Papua. And that idea was founded by Uncle Kevin Buzzacott. He's an -an Arabana elder who's fought for his land and people um, against uranium mining, against the theft of water by Western Mining and BHP, and also inspired um, people of all tribes to come together. And is when he first met the West Papuan community and Kaka Jacob um, at the Aboriginal Tent Embassy that he came to me and said, Izzy, you know, we need to, we need a boat. We need to sail there. We need to show our solidarity, our connection, show that we are one big family. And he enlisted me with the task to find a boat for the mission. Well, I didn't know anything about boats or sailing so it was a big learning curve. And um, after... Um, taking the South Australian police to court for uh, their abuses at Beverly Rain in Mine and winning We managed to get ourselves a boat to um, sail to West Papua so that was where I guess this kind of story began and From here, you know, we looked around and saw you know the other injustices that are happening Not only on our doorstep in West Papua But in PNG with land grabs and multinational corporations and Australia's influence over there deep sea bed mining, and then what the Australian government is inflicting on the refugees in Manus Island and Nauru. In fact, all refugees that are held in indefinite detention. So we decided that, you know, now we've picked up a couple of skills in the sailing department and, you know, got a few boat contacts, um, it was time to sail, time to sail for justice, time to go to the source, because sometimes places get forgotten and sometimes you just got to go there. So. Um, Yeah, Manus Island, it's a long way away and it might take us a little while but uh, we're going to do our best to get there and we're going to do our best to highlight a whole lot of issues along the way. So this is the, you know, the campaign launch and we've just launched the website as well today and we're inviting people to join us, join us in the sail, in the land or sea convoy. You can join us for a little bit or a lot. You can come all the way, you can BYO Boat um, or you can support us through different ways, social media, and just getting the word out there. Let the government know and let border force over there know that we're coming and we're not going to tolerate any more torture. Get them free. So I'd like to read a little message from Uncle Kevin. He says, and he, he said he really wanted to be here today as well, but he's having a kidney stone operation, but his heart is with us. And uh, after the last time he discovered it, he does get very seasick, so <laughs> he's going to be with us in spirit <laughs> and hopefully at the, at the launch here in Melbourne next year. So um, this, is, this is his words of wisdom. Don't turn your back on the old country. Our land and sea are calling us. The people of the land are suffering. These colonial governments have no jurisdiction. They have no right to be locking people up, torturing and killing them our mob, our brothers and sisters in West Papua, or the mobs fleeing war, coming here looking for safety. It's our land. We should be allowed to welcome them and look after our country, protect it from mining companies, logging, and waste dumps. I'm talking to all you mob out there and across the Pacific. Don't turn your back on the land, the water and the people. Time for this next generation to stand up and come together and sail for justice. So yeah, so he's put the call out and when you hear Uncle Kevin put the call out, it's, you know, it's serious business. He means business. It's time to get our shit together and get out there and make a change and do something. So I guess, you know, a little bit of a, you know, what, what, what we're here for. We sail for human rights, indigenous sovereignty, climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. We want to highlight the Australian government's abuse of refugees in indefinite detention. On our journey through the Pacific, we want to draw attention to the West Papuan genocide on our doorstep and show solidarity with those on the front line of climate change. We hope to link the struggles of First Nations and refugees against our common enemy, the Australian government. We are putting them on notice. We will travel with a message across land and sea for freedom and justice for the Pacific. So yeah, we're w- inviting all of you to get involved in this movement. So join us on the Freedom Flotilla, Sail for Justice. All right. What we got, Mr. Monkey?
3: Cook to Columbus, heroes that make me wonder When we gonna stop celebrating pillage and plunder Rape and genocide no longer can be denied With generations bent on generating divide So let the truth be told, acknowledged and vocalized Let the truth be told, acknowledged so folks can rise up Rise up, rise up Celebrated sailor, navigator, and explorer Scoping out the Antipodean fauna and flora Sponsored by your system infamous for waging horror On natives with genocide and enforced diaspora That's the aura Out the box like Pandora Ask the a people Wamperee or Yorta Yorta Ask any elder that you happen to meet If terra nullius was anything but lies and deceit now if I thought I could right wrongs, I'd be right and wrong. If I thought I could save the world, should I give up in writing songs? Play cricket, win the media's attention, then flip the interview with some things they forgot to mention. Colonialism, global ambition, more land acquisition, persistent, no jurisdiction. Sifting through the lies to find the truth that's been hidden, take a stand, get branded or stand, accused of sedition, comprehend deconstruct the spin versus the real deal unrevealed to fuel the fire in the wind episodically, advantage been lopsided philosophically, the new world order, we gotta fight it cause it's not that new and it's sure not what we ordered, chaos the moment the first fleet touched border rounds of ammunition before they even dropped anchor, generations later not enough to fix or heal the anger from smallpox, laced deliberately inside a quilt to sell blocks where race levies too heavy on the guilt abuse of power like the powder in the flower that killed it seems that racism's the mortar in this empire built long as sovereignty's off the bill blood still gonna spill long as weapons no longer mines but a new uranium deal the final battle it's on indigenous hold strong come on tell them what we chanting in modern day babylon from Cook to Columbus, heroes that make me wonder when we gonna stop celebrating pillage and plunder. Rape and genocide no longer can be denied with generations ban, ban on generating divide. Let the truth be told. Acknowledge to vocalize, let the truth be told. Acknowledge so folks can rise up. Wise up. Wise up.
0: 2018 Autonomy and Resistance Gathering, a three-day conference on Indigenous and grassroots struggles across Latin America, Asia Pacific and beyond. Topics include decolonisation, land defence from multinationals, autonomy and self-determination, prisons and criminalisation, visions for development beyond neoliberal capitalism, colonialism and patriarchy. Speakers including Christy Lee Horsewood from the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, Mariki Onis from the Drakkarong Embassy, Bazak Gel Kurdish activist from the Kurdish Democratic Community Centre and much more, November 2nd, 3rd and 4th at Trades Hall in Melbourne, Nam. For more information, look up Autonomy and Resistance Gathering 2018
2: on Facebook. Proud 3CR supporter. And we're back. It's uh, Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we've got on the line Claire Forbes, Grandmothers Against Detention of Refugee Children. Tilly, you're the one who brought uh, Claire into the studio.
0: Yes, um, she's going to be talking about... uh, um a meeting outside the federal court yesterday in which they marched against the detention of 40 refugee children and we've got her on the line um the group's just started in a kitchen table people grandmothers who've been working in the public sector for a long time wanted to do something about children refugee refugee children detention so. so
2: claire hello how are you
7: Hello, and thank you for uh, talking to Grandmothers Against Detention of Refugee Children. We're, of course, at the moment, fairly excited that so many uh, children with their families have been released from Nauru, but we are not, will not be silent until they're all here and they're all in a safe a community setting.
2: What set this off for you and your a group?
7: Well, it was the outrageous stories that, uh, about children being in detention that, uh, f- uh, filled us with horror. And of course, the offshore happenings at Nauru and Manus made us, uh, just aghast. And so we met round the kitchen table at, in fact, in Factor's house and, uh, a group, three of us, Gwenda Davy, Alex Butler, and myself, decided we were going to start Grandmothers Against Detention of Refugee Children. We didn't have that title in, but that was our purpose. We'd worked in child development, and we thought this is an outrage, and it's time for us to speak up. So we sent out emails to people we knew, and uh, we called a meeting in. Um, a Fairfield Uniting Church Hall that had been lent to us and put out 20 chairs and 70 people came.
8: Wow.
7: And so we've been going from there. We've now got 2,000 people on our uh, data list and, of course, many, many thousands more who follow us on Facebook. Um, and uh, we have people in every electorate in Victoria and a large uh, membership in New South Wales and s- scattered membership in other, on a significant uh, number of, in uh, Tasmania and uh, scattered membership in other states.
2: The, the, um, the issue of refugees and Australia's policy has always been, you touched on this, a political issue that uh, mainstream parties have considered to be uh, an example of Australian hard-heartedness—that uh, we have a racist heart—and uh, as a res—and uh, as, as a result, it was a vote winner for them to have these poor kids stuck in these places. Are you proving that this isn't the case?
7: I don't think we're proving it's not the case yet, but we're hoping that the hearts and minds of people uh, will persuade the politicians that that's not the case. And in fact, there have been times when Australia has been extremely generous to other um, peoples. We accepted large uh, contingent after the Vietnam War and... uh, uh, many of those people have settled happily, and I do not believe that Australian people want to see children and their families incarcerated. There have been uh, scares of boats uh, coming, but in fact, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, the boats of, uh, that have stopped, it, most people, most analysts seem to agree that it's not because of punishing these poor people in offshore terrible settings, but it's because we've been pretty effective in preventing them from coming. Now, with what the morality of that is is another matter. However, the idea of continuing to punish people in this terrible way simply is so awful that I don't believe our community will put up with it any longer.
0: Now, Claire, there's quite a few refugee groups who are advocating for children to be released, brought to... Australia mainland from Nauru how's your group different to other refugee advocate groups
7: well we're we we worked we worked wonderfully together uh during the kids off Nauru campaign where many organizations World Vision the Australian Refugee Advocacy Network Rural Australians for Refugees to name a few joined forces to uh you know d- demand all this, and in fact we do cooperate the various refugee organizations cooperate uh, in many in many national phone hookups uh, there's one every month of which I'm a part however, uh, the actual focus on Children against uh, detention, and being against children in detention, there was one other uh, organisation that had been involved in that, and that was Chill Out, which was uh, based in New South Wales, basically, and they have now folded. But they cheered us on. They said we think the. awareness of people that grandmothers are speaking up will be so effective that people everyone's got a grandmother and people are really uh, aware of the special relationship between grandmothers and children so for grandmothers to speak up for children and their families should be very effective I was just
2: going to say that um, there is an upsurgence in uh, uh, women, older women, finding a political voice, isn't they? Is that what you're finding?
7: I think that's true. And we are, and of course, we were delighted that Karen Phelps chose our colour. She, when she was speaking up for refugees, she was wearing purple too, because we decided in this meeting of 70 that purple would be our colour, that we'd always wear a purple scarf. We've got a purple badge that says uh, Grandmothers Against Detention of Refugee Children and Free the Children. And um, we've, we find on trams and in places that many people speak to pe- us, not all, not all people of our own age. Lots of uh, young people ask me, can I please have a leaflet to take home to my grandmother?
2: Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, I actually was on a tram the other day and I t- I, you actually hear people talking about this issue. Uh, Normally people uh, Don't speak politics in Australia Because of the obvious reasons That they don't want to come to fisticuffs Or they don't like confrontation But people are talking about the refugee issue
7: They are And I suppose one of the things we did, we actually had a conference in the Australian Nursing Federation's building. They very kindly lent it to us. And we did walk from there down to the federal court. Was
0: this Um, yesterday?
7: Yesterday we walked, we marched through the Victoria Market singing and we were so delighted.
0: And what was the the significance of yesterday?
7: uh, uh, That was that there was a court case in the federal court um, that... um, uh, where the Australian government was challenging the right of the court to, uh, or the power of the court to order the removal of sick refugees from offshore to Australia. And uh, the the case was being opposed, but it was being put for the refugees by uh, the Human uh, Rights Law Centre and Daniel... Webb was one of the people running the case, and uh, he had been going to speak to us at our conference. And we thought, well, if he can't come to us, we'll go to him. We had, uh, we had already planned to go down to the market with our leaflets uh, in our lunch break, so we continued on to the federal court, and when we got there, Freya Dinshaw, who'd spoken to us, Arif Huzain, who'd answered questions for us, came out with... Uh, Daniel Webb. So we sang that We Shall Overcome, We Shall Free the Children to the tune of We Shall Overcome and cheered him and uh, he said it was the most wonderful surprise. The case cannot be discussed in detail because it's still in progress. But the uh, So it's been uh, at this stage, the, uh, the submissions can still go on to bring people here. But... Um, uh, it was wonderful, and we were, people were terribly excited to be singing down in the, in the federal court uh, outside the federal court, and the police stood back and looked kindly at us <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: the um as you've pointed out, this is a step by step approach to victory uh, It's taken a long time to get to this point. Uh, how do your members uh, feel about the next stage of the campaign?
7: Well, we think it's a step forward, but then we're worried about why is the government, why would the government be trying to challenge the power to bring people... So it's a step forward and then an attempt at a big step back. So, uh, and also, we want to make sure that the children who have been brought here with their families are in safe community settings the last thing we want to do is traumatize them once they get here and a number of them are locked up at MITRE at the uh, detention center at Broadmeadows and we must insist that all of those children are in safe community settings with their families and not being further traumatized so that's our next step Uh, And then we'll be, uh, we're not party political, but we do lobby politicians, and we'll be talking and talking and talking to them. Uh, And we're delighted that more and more of them are speaking out, and we're going to encourage them to keep it up.
2: Well, well, more power to your arm. I I, uh, am really impressed. And uh, are you yourself used to community action, or has this been a real eye-opener to you?
7: Well, both are true. It's been a real eye-opener. I did work in uh, child development for a long time and lobbied with many... Wonderful people, including Judy Bisland, who was leading us in that uh, for the for quality in childcare for children, and we did succeed in various changes to the legislation in Victoria. So I got some good lessons in lobbying. Then um, I've also uh, usually attended the Palm Sunday peace marches, and uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm my father's experience in the First World War helped make me. Uh, very strongly opposed to war and very conscious of the terrible damage that's done to people during wars.
2: So, how
0: can people, uh, well, grandmothers, I guess, uh, how can we get our grandmothers involved?
7: Okay, tell them to write. Let's hope anyone listening's got a pen because we're, uh, we know lots of uh, people do things through Facebook and some of ours do, but some of our demographic is not on Facebook. So this is what you do. You, you write, you email to Grandmother's R-E-F, short for refugees, Ref at gmail.com. I'll say that again. Grandmother's riff at gmail.com and we'll send back to you saying, are you a grandmother or a frog? A frog being a friend of grandmother's. <laughs> and, and we, we list, put you on our email list as a grandmother or a frog and we ask if you'll be happy to share your uh, email with others in your electorate because we thought it was a very brilliant idea to assign people up in electorates, and uh, I give the credit for thinking of that to Gwenda Davy and Alex Butler. And we uh, we sign them up in their electorate. They meet locally. Uh, many of them conduct vigils. Lots of people will have seen the group from the electorate of Wills in Coburg out on the street. The electorate from Batman now Cooper is very active out on the street regularly, often. And the Bendigo mob, well, they they're up and running all the time. In fact, they've got some actions happening today.
2: Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> My grandma's
0: up in Bendigo. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so you know all about it, Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for uh, taking time to have a yarn with us today, Claire. Thanks for coming on the show, Claire. And let's get all
7: those kids off by the 20th of November. That's the climax. Is that
0: World Children's Day?
7: It's Universal Children's Day, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, thank you.
6: you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter.
2: You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, Rebecca and Tilly and on the line we've got uh, Marcela de because, Mansella, you're part of a group called Defend Public Housing and there's a rally coming up.
8: Yes, Annie. Um, I'm part of a group called Public Housing Defence Network and we are working together with lots of different groups who are also working on the same cause. Um, for example, there's a group of people uh, at the Daraban Estate uh, um, at the Ascot Vale Estate, etc. There are eleven estates, public housing estates in Melbourne, that this Andrews government is targeting, and they're calling it a renewal program, which sounds, you know, people would. Expect, sounds nice, doesn't it? Yeah, people would expect renovations, repairs, fixing up, uh, falling, out, you know, buildings that are falling apart, painting, whatever, whatever. But in fact, what they're planning to do is actually sell off public housing land. To private developers
0: Now are they selling off sections of the public housing land or the entire area?
8: sections, sections but but yes, yeah, they're selling off sections, and once you sell something off to private developers, no way are we ever going to get that back.
2: It's fascinating, isn't it? Because all the 11 sites that they've uh, chosen are all prime real estate and uh, positioned in in a city uh, uh, within that circle. And uh, what they're doing is not only selling the public land but uh, cleansing uh, these areas of uh, low-income people, really, aren't
8: they? Yeah, because if you're a low-income person, you don't deserve to have convenience. You don't deserve to be in, you know, in really good areas where everything's nice and easy. You don't even deserve to maintain your own historical kind of life. You know, you've grown up there, you've you live there, you've got connections there, your children went to school there. Maybe even you are going to school there. You've got to, sh- you know, shipped out somewhere else. And you don't even know where you're, be- you're being sent.
2: It's um, it's quite a tragic um, sort of approach. I mean, I know that uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Labor Party, Victorian Labor, put out some sort of statement about how they were going to uh, increase the public housing stock by a thousand, and they'll be doing it in places like Bendigo and Geelong. And a thousand p- places, and they will still be in the hand of public housing. So, quite clearly, the campaign is denting their consciousness.
8: Yes, because, and also they're playing a game, you know, they make that announcement, but they are not making, the newspapers are not printing um, very often anyway, they're not printing these facts that they're actually taking away large, large bits of land, you know, from public housing uh, stock. The 1,000 that they're adding makes them look like
2: heroes. Well, in actual fact, they're cutting away thousands and thousands more, aren't they? And they're bringing them down. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. Also, it's public land. Public land going to be sold, and it's been shown by research coming out of Melbourne University that the land that they've already sold uh, in other places have been sold to private developers for a song. Yes,
8: yes. And, um, you know, people who, you know, old old Australians, I mean, I'm a migrant, but older Australians who've lived here all their lives, you know, their um, grandparents, whatever, their families, their taxes have gone towards this land to to make a good life for everyone, some sense of equality, some sense of this idea of fair go, whatever, that was part of the Australian ethos. But now the Andrews government, the Labour government, is just taking what the public have paid for, and they have decided to sell it. I mean, I don't understand, and we don't understand how they can actually make these decisions and also lie about it. Um, so this rally is really important. We've got tenants on these 11 estates, we've got concerned citizens, and we've got you know activists and politicians coming together uh, on the 9th of um, November on Friday at 6 p.m. at the State Library and we really urge a lot of people to come. We need them to get this message that, and the Liberal government as well. You know, anyone who's contemplating ideas of privatizing public um, land in any way, public services even, they should get the idea that we can't we can't cope with this. Homelessness is increasing. That's the now, irony.
0: Now, Maslene, um, yes. the the government would propose that perhaps that they are selling off areas of public housing on an integration scheme of having. People from by people involved outside the public housing community inside public housing areas and also that they're improving lifts and realtor access, accessibility, and that's one aspect of why some area of public housing has been sold off. What would you, how would you respond to that?
8: Okay, if you go back to the accessibility and making, making it more you know uh, convenient for people, of course they can do that, and of course that needs to be done, but that doesn't require you selling it off. You know, all renovations can be made to existing property or even if it needs to be pulled down, but don't sell that land.
0: It is true that once you sell something, privatisation, yeah. it's very difficult to reclaim it for later yeah, you, generations.
8: In the history of Australia or history of any country, you show me where they've actually given some, something back. You know, it doesn't happen. It doesn't work like that. And besides, it's actually happening in many countries. This is a, This kind of policy is part of the new world we live in where, you know, it's, we're going for greed and selfishness and we're forgetting our social responsibility to those who are vulnerable. And, um, and the other part that you're talking about, you know, the, the integration business, that's rubbish, you know. Um, people who live, pe- wherever people are living, they make connections. You can't, start, you can't just remove people and plant them in a new environment and ex- expect them to make connections and make relationships.
2: It's interesting, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, they're talking about integration, the uh, public housing uh, community uh, versus the rest of the community, as if, in actual fact, there's a marked difference between the two types of people.
8: Well, see, in, in the end, I think that's the that's the ideology that's driving this program, I think, because, you know, people who live in these states um, are not deemed good enough to live um, in prime real estate, and that's what it's about because they're somehow marked because they they need some kind of support. Um,
2: uh, uh, actually, you you were saying that uh, you you come from a migrant family, and you I happen to know that your background is that your family grew up on the Ascot Vale estate, and I went yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, tell us your experience.
8: Yeah, um, we were very lucky. We came in the seventies, and uh, we we got our house fairly fairly quickly, but not fast enough <laughs> in terms of what my parents needed, the support they needed. But yeah, we got a, a, a lovely house. You know, it was, um, uh, what was it, three bedrooms with five children. And it was great because, and we we lived there. I, and I moved out of there only as an adult. So we lived there. We had stability. You know, we could go to the same school. We could build lives and relationships with people in our area, our neighbors. I mean. Why should we, I don't understand this rationale of this integration business because we had fantastic relationships with our other public housing neighbours.
2: And you, you yourself went on to go to university and then have a you know, productive working life, basically, uh, which the stability of that and the uh, amenity of the public housing uh, gave you.
8: Yes, you know, through the through this uh, work that I've been doing by, by working on this public housing defense network, I have met many people like myself who only needed public housing for a period of time, especially because we were children. And then we moved on to make good lives and contribute back to society, become a taxpayer, et cetera, et cetera. There are others who still need that support. You know, you, life is uneven. We don't know what life brings. The so people need the support, at the time of their life, when they need it, if that makes sense, so this is what we need in order to make people active and sort of effective members of community rather than bringing them down to homelessness where where we we scoff at them you know they 're in our way, we get embarrassed by it
2: so we're actually we've led this discussion to something that's very important, which is a uh, concept of uh, social Um, uh, concepts of uh, uh, where public housing is actually not about, uh, uh, you know, fringe-dwelling communities but actually being at the centre of our political structure, which is that we are a community that has uh, a socialist heart, really.
8: Yeah, I mean, that's that's the kind of... um that's the kind of Australia that, you know, the um, previous politicians perceived. When they Ascot Vale is 72 hectares. That's what they had. Um, the, the designing of Ascot Vale is pretty amazing. The, the way the buildings were, were built to get the light in certain, certain parts of the day, the kinds of trees they selected for planting. Amazing thought and care went into this program. And now we're just disseminating this program. Um, there are many stages planned for Ascotville, by the way. The first stage is getting the land that's uh, only on one street, uh, but it, it's a land on a little bit of a hill. Um, you know, So slowly they're planning to get rid of lots, of lots of public housing estate, maybe all of it. We don't even know that part of it, the de- that detail. But certainly there's five stages at least for Ascotville for the 72 hectares.
2: So you, what you're saying is that the government has a secretive approach to this, They're not divulging (laughs) their plans.
8: No, no. They they divulged some of it enough for us to know it. It was was all on the website, and they've been cleaning up the website slowly and not, you know, pulling out bits of information slowly. Um, But we know enough to know that it was all publicised by themselves. They've got so many stages going um, towards privatisation. And um, this, yeah, it's very, very sad.
2: I I was... I was quite fascinated to go to the um, set of public housing uh, estate. This the public housing estate in North uh, Melbourne, for example. Now, of course, North Melbourne is a prime uh, a piece of real estate. And uh, when I was uh, going along there to try and find where the group of public housing people were meeting to talk about uh, the uh, remove their removal, effectively, uh, I. Got caught up with uh, looking at the uh, set of uh, buildings on the other side of the road. And interestingly enough, to me, the buildings on the other side of the road are exactly the same as the buildings in the public housing estate. And it turned out that those buildings had been uh, sold off from a public housing into private hands. And so, this idea that public housing is a, uh, a shocking, in a shocking state. Is, not t- is, is a bit ingenuous in actual fact. What they're offering in the private market is exactly the same. It's just that it's in private hands.
4: Yes,
8: yes. Uh, yeah. But we, we do concede that some of the public housing in some of these estates do need um, uh, repair. They do need serious uh, attention, but that does not rationalise selling it off.
2: Yeah, no, 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 I understand it it, because uh, in actual fact, when we start looking at this issue, what we've discovered is that uh, uh, repair regimes have stopped and uh, that public money isn't being put as, you know, they're the landlord and they haven't actually been uh, pulling their weight. Yeah. Uh, And um, the other side of it is that uh, for at least five years, if not longer, they've been vacating... Uh, uh, Flats Uh, Probably One might say To uh, further This plan of privatisation At the same time As there being at least 85,000 People on their waiting list
8: Yeah, it's very sad You know, as well uh, There are many, many, many people gone already There are many flats That are empty They've moved people on, we don't know where to and also, um, people are still sleeping on the street. They move people on, but they haven't refilled them. It's just sinful what they're doing. It's unbelievable. Lack of humanity here, bluntly.
2: But also a concerted plan.
8: Yeah, it's that, that proves it. Exactly, Annie. That proves that this is actually part of a whole sweep of cleaning up, What in their minds, cleaning up and cleansing this, this inner city area.
2: Also house prices uh one of the uh one of the arguments is that um if you've got public housing, it really is an issue for everybody because actually it maintains uh credible levels of rent in the private rental market yes that's true
8: yes yes yeah yeah uh, yeah uh, see that's true. But the, the government um, and other groups also who, who favor these changes are using all these euphemisms of affordable housing and all this community housing and all of these other language to try and legitimize this privatization process. Well, and well, they're mixing it all up and confusing people.
2: Oh, yeah, they use this term called social housing and stuff yes. like that. And it's not public housing.
8: No, no, no. Public housing simply should be run by the government. So there's one one waiting list for everyone. It's all transparent, the criteria, and you know where you and you've got these rights. But you know you know where you stand. But other kinds of housing, like community housing, it all changes. Each group has their own infrastructure. They run their own little bank of houses, and it's limited. To, it's a limited program as well because. After 20 years, I believe they can become
0: privatised. So does that mean that people, the waiting lists will change in terms of who gets the next lot of housing if it's not from the original waiting list, if it's from... What did you say it was from?
8: I, I said that the, the waiting lists are, are different The community with, with each group with running community their own
0: housing. System. So people who are on yeah. the top of the public housing list may not get the flats due to the community housing preference.
8: It's a concern, it's a concern, yeah. But more than anything, we really believe that it should be government-run, government-owned, government-run.
2: So tell us about the rally.
8: The rally is on Friday, the so coming Friday, the 9th, the 9th of um, November, at 6pm at the State Library.
2: And everybody should be there.
8: Oh, really, everybody should be there. You know, if, you, if you've actually walked past a homeless person in your, your, and you in this winter especially, and you know, you, and your consciousness has raised, you know, all kinds of reasons. If you've lived in public housing yourself, you've benefited from it. You know, if you care about the kind of society you live in, um, you should really be there because how, without housing, nothing else is possible. Health, education, everything else depends on stability of, of shelter.
2: 6 p.m. Friday, 6 p.m. 9th of Thank month. you. Annie. Thank you. Yes, Thank you, Annie. Yeah, so 6 pm, Friday, 9th of uh, November, 9th of November, that's this Friday coming up. State Library, Victoria. I expect to see you all there. Stand your For
1: 10 days in November. Defendant Extends Public Housing will be campaigning on the steps of Parliament House to make public housing an election issue. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us anytime from Wednesday the 14th of November, that's midday the 14th of November, to Saturday midnight the 24th of November, and put the spotlight on public housing this Victorian state election. Use Victoria's stamp duty revenue approximately. billion plus per year for public housing. House 1 million Victorians by 2029. Public housing, everybody's business. Join us. Bring tea, bring coffee, bring cakes, bring food, bring your musical instruments, and most important of all, bring yourself and your sleeping bag. We'll be broadcasting live from the steps of the Victorian Parliament House in support of Defend and Extend Public Housing's 10-day vigil. Public housing, everybody's business. Join the anarchist world this week at Parliament House, 10am to 11am on two Wednesdays, the 14th and 21st of November. And yes, there is more also join Talk Back With Attitude at Parliament House, 10 to 11am, Thursday the 15th and the 22nd of November. Make public housing a significant issue for the forthcoming state election. Join us for these live broadcasts on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. (laughs)
5: A week solidarity, Bricky Team, Lister, when we mentioned last week, there's got to be something said about our government's not doing anything, because on one level, that's got to be the safest thing. Except when they're doing something about doing nothing, like climate change. Like by doing nothing, they're doing something about making it worse. Although, if they were doing something, that too would be odds-on in this racing season to make it worse all reflected in the latest poll results, which have both Big Supremo Scuttle Them more last than and Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo little Billy Shorten ambition in, quote, negative territory, as they call it. In other words, the majority want neither, which shows the levels of excitement gripping the nation at the choice we're offered. Through all that, Scuttle Them is slightly less unpopular than Little Billy's unpopular, which says heaps about Little Billy. While on polls, surprising result from one of the big four international accounting behemoths showing four out of five true blue Aussies believe banks act unethically and three out of four true blue Aussies believe banks take no responsibility for their mistakes and don't keep their promises. How surprising. Oh, not that 80 and 75% think that way, but that 20 and 25% don't think that way, think they do act ethically and take responsibility. Where, Where have they been? Okay, some of the 20 and 25 fell into the not sure department, but what's there to be not sure about? And the unethical, don't accept responsibility, don't keep their promises lot, are the responsible, independent directors to whom our Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Kelly Oda, why are workers so evil, wants to hand all that lovely, lovely workers super money. Because evil unions lack the expertise and ethics and independence the banks and great financial institutions bring. And thus, to achieve this national necessity, Kelly threw this trap for the evil unions into the terms of reference of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission to get the evil unions out of the way of their members' money. All that tempting, lovely, lovely. And hasn't that worked a treat? Not that they and she haven't stopped trying. Just this week, this retail investment advisor, a bloke called Chris Bricky, real name, said it was wrong to conclude that industry funds outperform bank-owned funds, beat bank-owned funds, his words, because they are gun investors. No, no, he said. The main reason industry funds have performed better is their use of unlisted assets such as property and infrastructure, which have performed very well over many years. Now, Chris, I'm not sure that quite makes your point. Our view is that fees and asset allocation account for almost all of the differences in performance. Sorry again, Chris, but I rather feel the fees bit, in other words, ripping off big time and asset allocation, in other words, smarter investing, makes our point. Not sure I'd want him on our side in a debate. He was commenting on an interim productivity profits commission report with a final report to Kelly and the team due by year's end on, quote, making the super system more competitive and efficient, which we assume poor Kelly's banking on, so to speak, to succeed where her royal commission genius idea blew up in her face. But the great practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all haven't given up, despite Chris's logical disaster, on getting their hands on all that lovely. We reported ages ago that Troubler was filthy richest or near filthy richest of the filthy rich, Anthony Yura Pratt, had this brainwave that those trillions should be handed to the filthy richest of the filthy rich, that Superfund should get into the business of making business loans, handouts to people like... Well, like him. Why should common, lazy, avaricious workers benefit from super when he and his lot could make all that lovely, lovely work for the good of all of them? Sorry, us. And he got all his cronies together, sorry, caring business class associates together, to plot how to get their hands on all that lovely, lovely. And reports this week indicate at least some super funds have been providing loans to Anthony and his mates. Well... Not sure mates is the word. With that lot, they're mates, as long as they're worth something to each other. The reports arising from Anthony getting the usual suspects together again to discuss the urgency of them getting their hands on the tempting trillions, supported strongly by the former world's greatest, worst treasurer, Paul, described as the architect of the super system, showing that handing workers' money to their caring employers is the socialist thing to do. As far as I could make out, among the filthy witch gathering, Paul was the nearest thing to socialism we could find. In other words, the people who worked for all that super, the owners of all that money, had no say in the whole thing. Well, what do they know about finance? As Chris pointed out, they just happen to invest lots more profitably and don't charge themselves excessive fees. As a tangential thought, Anthony and the filthiest of the filthy rich lot claiming it's essential super funds be handed to them displays, dare we say it, a lack of faith in the banks and the financial institutions and the traditional fundraising sources. Or they see super funds as easier to rip off, but no, no, caring employers would never dream of cheating, robbing, exploiting workers over and above employing them in the first place which apparently isn't quite enough theft of their labours but eradicating that perfidious thought no less a neutral observer as the true blue Aussie capitalist review which moderated the gathering in Anthony Yora Pratt's humble little Sydney apartment and then editorialised what a brilliant idea it is for the caring business class to get their hands on all that money. Under another editorial, same-day warning, a timely, timely warning, that the re-election of a socialist government in Victoria would mean rule by the evil, evil unions who have no respect for the law. Speaking of the law, standing between caring employers who may just inadvertently exploit workers and the interests of workers is the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, the aforementioned Kelly, as she pushes on in the relentless struggle against evil. Last week, Kelly was granted leave to appear on the side of caring labour hire employer Work Pack the Profits in a federal court case aiming to overthrow an earlier decision that a so-called casual worker must be paid a crude annual leave as well as other permanent employee entitlements because he worked regular and predictable hours. This, Kelly and the caring employer screamed injustice, was double-dipping because casual rates allowed for the caring employer not meeting those entitlements. Small business... That very heart of the Trueblausie economy must be able to operate with certainty and clarity of the law, she said, and thank goodness Kelly would never mean the certainty and clarity of ripping off their workers. No no. Kelly is concerned double dipping workers are ripping off their caring employers. And she knows that in the casual part-time gig economy, all caring employers pay their lazy avaricious workers every cent they're due. Just ask the happy, happy hospitality staff along de Grave Street, de Wages Grave Street. Following Kelly's intervention to appear alongside the caring employer, the bloody evil construction union sought leave this week to intervene to support the decision that workers must be paid basic entitlements. In other words, it supports double-dipping. Typical evil. Because instead of work-pack profits appealing the decision, it has dredged up a non-union member as its opponent in this case as it argues he does not deserve those entitlements and therefore renders the previous decision wrong and is paying the non-union members legal fees, that is, meeting the legal costs of the whole case. Well, until Kelly and the evil union intervened, and for some silly reason, the union feels there could be something a trifle smelly about all that, showing how the mind of evil works. As a by the by, the very opposite, the minds of caring and compassion notice these. Oh, sorry, a coppers walked a thousand kilometres to raise funds for coppers with quote mental health, you know, you know, like issues. And we commented before that surely just wanting to become a copper indicates a mental health issue. But sadly, now they've been forced to walk a thousand kilometres in the other direction to raise funds for blisters, that is, to treat blisters. And asked about neo-fascists infiltrating the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party, its deputy supremo, Bridget McKean on property, told us she thinks extremism is damaging in any organisation, showing she knows full well the problem with the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party. On the other hand, she said the big supremo, Michael, whatever his name is, is doing an awesome job which may indicate she has no idea. But then she was responding to a suggestion that former Big Supremo, well, our old mate Barnacle, may make a comeback, so maybe it was just terror. On fascist disaster in Brazil, but that's all I can say. It's not the subject of satire or humour. And saw an ad on commercial telly the other night... Showing how AMP on the customers, which came a bit unstuck at the World Commission, cares about the needy with an AMP on the customers tomorrow fund. Clever marketing, presumably hoping we'll forget about yesterday. And finally, satire can't compete. The Minister for Concentration Camps, razor wire, and sink the boats, Peter Dupper, told us with a straight face he's been trying to get kids off Nauru for five years. Oh. Perhaps he wasn't aware. All he had to do was get them off, which still leaves the non-kids, of course. But good week for Pete with big business continuing the US civilization of our culture with Halloween, with zombies. What a break for Pete. He doesn't have to dress up. Good morning.
2: Yeah, good morning, Kevin. (laughs) He doesn't have to dress up. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And uh, we're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, Rebecca's in the room and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don.
4: Hello, Annie. G'day, Rebecca, and g'day to all your listeners.
2: Yeah, I guess you were just, uh, one of the things we were going to talk about was indeed, uh, when is a casual not a casual?
4: Yes, well, uh, we can uh, certainly cover that and uh, uh, I had planned to, but... I think uh, uh, Kevin's, uh, the way Kevin dealt with it is a perfect introduction to that. Um, since we last talked, I think the uh, what, one of the things that's happened is that we are now seeing much more clearly the major contours of the trajectory, if you like, to the next national election.
2: I was going to say, you, you just used something... That's heavy lifting, about four incredibly big words there.
4: <laughs> yes, contours, trajectory... <laughs> Election. Oh, <laughs> my gosh.
2: We're calm down, calm yeah. down. <laughs>
4: well, what, what I'm talking about there, of course, is that uh, elections, uh, as, the, for example, the 2007 elections did, uh, which rooted out the Howard government and also defeated Howard in his own seat, uh, drilled down to two major issues in which...
2: That sounds like, you know when you say it like that, it's like when I was a kid and my dad was always trying to get the cooch grass out the back. And he said, mm. got to dig it out. You've got to dig it out. No poison required.
4: I, I, I suspect it is a bit uh, a bit of language from the past. That's true. Uh, but what happened then was, of course, that there were two major social movements that enabled uh, the ALP victory. And that, that was the First major movement against uh, climate change, and of course the All Rights at Work campaign. Now those two big campaigns didn't quite ever come together and work interactively, but they nevertheless were major social movements. And now what we're seeing right now is a similar thing happening around the publics, the public mobilisation. To do something that is uh, uh, that is respectful of humanity in regards to refugees, and then of course we have the change the rules of ca- campaign, and a very different thing going on right now, but nevertheless crossing across all the different social uh, classes and so on is a desire to do something effective to begin to urgently reverse the impact of climate change
2: it 's interesting you should say that because um you're quite right. Uh, there's been uh, these campaigns, there's been an active uh, effort to put all these different uh, forces into silos so that, you know, the issues of a worker aren't the same as the Greens, you know, for example, you know, looking after the environment. But actually, this is a false, I uh, another big word, dichotomy, isn't it?
4: Yeah, well, you introduced that word, and I, you'll have to tell me what it means in a moment. But um, the, but I agree with you. I do know what it means, and I think that this is a point that I'll come back to in a moment when we talk about uh, climate change and unions, which is one of the things that I think has uh, uh, become more apparent in recent uh, in recent days. The first thing is that I think that in this trajectory onto it, what I think we could talk about today is firstly. Very briefly about what's going on in the economy. Then we'll, then we'll have a, a dip at the, what Kevin, and just elaborate a little bit upon what Kevin said regarding permanent casuals. And then we get into unions and climate change. And there's been such exciting developments in a couple of cases in other parts of the world that we should be paying attention to. And then finally spend most of our time on the, uh, annual wage
2: review. All right, get a wiggle on. Change, All man. right, I'm timing you. Okay. Come on, hurry how about,
4: up. How about that? So firstly, just in regards to the economy, the only hope rapidly dissipating, uh, the only hope for a Turnbull government, uh, for a... Um, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: nice faux pas
9: there.
4: <laughs> the, uh, the only hope for them is that they can convince a majority of the people that uh, they can manage a crisis in the economy better than labour. But even there, they have this huge problem where they have to tell everybody that the economy is going along really well, thanks to them. But there is going to be another uh, convulsion in the economy that's going to have dramatic and detrimental impacts upon uh, the majority of the population.
2: Oh, they're already doing uh, reports about how the nosedive in the housing market is yeah. going to slit the throat of the Australian economy.
6: And Australia, that uh,
2: the ne- negative gearing coming out of Labor is going to be the death knell of Australian society.
4: Yeah, that's, that's true. And that's happened just in the last week or so. Yeah, no,
2: actually, it happened over the last ago, few days.
4: <laughs> a month or so ago, the mainstream economy commentators uh, were in denial that there was going to be a crisis impact in Australia. Now, now uh, since then... The voices that, and these are those who want to defend the system, they're not people like uh, myself or Kevin or uh, Humphrey McQueen who are critical of the system, Uh, they're now recognising that the crisis is going to hit and they don't know when and they don't know what the ultimate trigger is going to be, but they're now talking about it. So the federal election and the Change the Rules campaign and the movement to urgently tackle climate change will have to confront another crisis in the system in the next, maybe in the next 12 months, certainly in the next uh, two years. So that will shape a lot of thinking and decision-making and also the atmospheric itself. Traditionally, in Australia, social movements go weak at the knees when there's an economic crisis.
2: That's for sure.
4: So we we have to find a way of not letting that happen over the next six months to two years. We'll have to break through against our own history. Now, so with that in mind, with that backdrop in mind, a little bit on the casualisation thing, what is happening is that the mining union within the CFMMEU has uh, been concerned for some years about how all through the mining industry, but particularly in Queensland, employers have been setting up enterprise agreements and other forms of employment using labour hire companies that uh, enable the use by the host companies, that is the people who hire labour hire companies to provide labour, to use the wages paid by the labour hire company to cut their overall labour costs.
2: Yeah, and yeah, it's their business and
4: that, plan. That takes is the, the so called permanent casual, now, which is an
2: oxymoron. CFMVU,
4: and one one of its, it is an oxymoron. What did the CFMMEU members put his hand up to challenge that in the court and in the fair in in the federal court, not in the Fair Work Commission?
2: Surprise, yeah, uh, surprise! The federal surprise.
4: Court in general found in favour of his. Suggestion that although employed as a casual, he was a permanent casual, and therefore he, they agreed with him that he should be paid as a permanent.
2: Now that's now, really interesting because, because uh, Don, because what what's going on here is that the Mickey Mouse system called the Fair Work Commission was trumped. By common law They just don't expect people to have the Enough finances to go to common law
0: Yeah, or well maybe enough uh, Knowledge about the system And what their rights are
4: That's exact, that, That's very true I, I think in this case the, It's not the common law That's, common law is a factor But it's in this particular Case, when the matter Finally ended up, the union Took the, wasn't entirely Happy, happy with the small win they had so they appealed it to a higher level and got a three-judge federal court that found in their favour and basically this has pushed the employers into a frenzy. Now what the the three-judge federal court did, which is called on appeal, was that they said that the particular worker under the enterprise agreement, so this is where it's not common law, its it's enterprise agreement and Fair Work Act law, under the enterprise agreement he was employed under, although the employer may have viewed him and defined him to be a permanent casual, their actual practice was to use him as a permanent worker. So the facts of the case enabled the federal court to say that he was a permanent worker and therefore he was entitled to any uh, entitlements regarding annual leave and some other forms of leave.
2: So what you're saying is that the employer just has to be more canny. I mean, they've got to a point where they just think that they can write their own uh, whatever they like, do whatever they like.
4: Yes. In a sense, it requires, and this is what the uh, pro-employer legal firms are saying to employers, is clean up the language in your contracts of employment and in your enterprise agreements. Well doing that in enterprise agreements is a little bit tricky and enterprise agreements still trump uh, the initial letter of employment in terms of defining rights. So the employers all across the mining industry have got a problem and this is to go back to Rebecca's point, the union has run this case for a member in the federal court and that the member had a hunch, the union agreed uh, agreed with him, and the union uh, uh, obviously depended upon members' dues income is enabled to be able to pursue quite an expensive claim and win in this case. Now the upshot of this is now the guts of it is this: is that generally speaking, awards and enterprise agreements uh say that a casual is someone who is described as such by the employer. So, in other words, uh, the employer controls the definition of whether they're employing someone as a casual or not. Now, that is what is up in the air now. And that's why the employers have got their undies in a twist.
0: Now, Don, um, yes. is, is there any period of time that you can be a casual worker and then be able to ask your employer for a part-time or full-time contract and that they legally have to consider that option?
4: Yes, yes. That's called casual conversion. So and what that's...
0: period of time would that be before...
4: Uh, well, at the moment, I think off the top of my head, and I'm pretty sure about this, uh, the common standard is after 12 months.
0: And then and your employer has some, to there give. There
4: are some enterprise agreements where it's less. Now there are cert- Now what happens in that situation is that the casual, uh, the, uh, the sorry, the employer has to uh, uh, has to treat the worker with respect in dealing with the re- in dealing with the request and now, give not them not a
0: legitimate reason why not.
4: Provide the exact language on all of that. Maybe we can come back to that next time. But the important thing here is that. The employers together are supporting the original labour hire employer to appeal again using a different worker. And that's where the big employer organisations are swinging in behind that and are wanting to intervene, as it's called, in a new appeal and that's where Kelly O'Dwyer is.
2: Yeah, in. yeah, and then the government comes out of hiding, shows itself to be the <laughs> yeah. uh, purely the attack dog of the employer and not representing the entire country.
4: Yeah. Uh, so there are two things at stake. Firstly, there are probably thousands of workers out there who are in much the same
2: situation. I think you'll find there's an awful lot of people in the executive... Well, executives. it does depend,
4: you've got to be careful in this case, we should not get carried away too much. It does depend upon the wording of the enterprise agreement, the contract of employment and the relevant award and that's where the mining union, uh, including the national president, Tony Maher, that's where they're on to the specifics of the situation in the mining industry and uh, uh, around those matters, and that's what is enabling uh, two things to happen. Firstly, the crumbling of I wouldn't say the I wouldn't say the removal yet, but the crumbling of the employer control of the definition. And then secondly, the prospect that there are literally thousands of workers out there who are entitled to the backdating of their entitlements around annual leave and probably other forms of
2: leave also. Uh, Don, I just want to remind our listeners that they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast and we're talking to Donald Sutherland about labour issues and in the studio is Annie, Rebecca and Tilly. Let's move on to one of the other issues that you wanted to talk about, which was the environment unions and the future.
4: Yeah, as we were saying, I think um, obviously um, the urgency of doing something to get climate change under control and reverse it is going to be a big factor in the elections. From the point of view of unions, I think there's, um, uh, and, and in fact there is now some surveys showing that in most of the federal seats, climate change in action is now a tipping point issue. We saw that in Wentworth. But just, two, just quickly, just two developments and then one remarkable statement. Firstly, in uh, Costa Rica, there, uh, just the other day, there was a meeting, the third regional conference on energy environment of work uh, convened by the Trade Union Confederation of the Americas. And they met to consider the impact of climate change and what was going on with the supply of energy, especially to the impoverished of South America. Uh, of America latina and uh, and so on. I can't go through the whole report but it, it can be found at the website for trade unions for energy democracy. Uh, but essentially they develop they have developed an affirmative agenda despite all the problem, other problems they have to deal with that has four uh, primary points. firstly to end energy poverty. In other words, for them it still remains a huge problem that the mass of the population do not get the access to the energy they need for an adequate standard of living. Now, associated with that, they're calling for deprivatization and the recovery of people sovereignty over the ownership of co- common resources and goods versus transnational corporation ownership.
2: Fantastic. And they
4: also say that they reject technological determinism coming from the transnational energy corporations It gives precedence to one technology over another. And they go on then to talk about, uh, and here's uh, a phrase that I haven't heard before, the defossilisation of the energy matrix, that is essentially taking uh, carbon-sourced energy out of the energy matrix. Mm. So that was really exciting. Secondly, in Spain, the Spanish coal unions have won a landmark just transition deal and in that deal, uh, a, a, a significant number of slowly, uh, dwindling uh, coal mines will be rapidly converted uh, and closed down, and that will occur over a period uh, from about I think 1921 to 1924, if I remember correctly. Quite swift. Yeah, quite swift. And that will and and the decommissioning of those mines. Will be replaced by an action plan for each one that will enable, that will include plans for the development of renewable energy, improving energy efficiency, and investing in developing new industries. And there's something like 250 million euros that are part of that plan. That plan was negotiated by the coal industry workers through their union. Wow. And there was a terrific alliance of three of the major unions in Spain that brought their members together to do that. And I think that is a, a very exciting development. I mean, as part I
2: mean, of, and part of that plan will be employment opportunities in renewable energy, opportunities.
4: The, the just transition means that there will be things like an upgrading of facilities in the communities, including around waste management and recycling, water treatment, utilities infrastructure and so on and all of that is about a forest recovery i found that very interesting and all of that will be based upon the employment of the miners that will be transitioning from coal mining work into those alternative socially useful better,
2: job, work. better jobs yeah.
4: yeah socially useful going from uh, uh, work uh, socially going to socially useful work
2: and what was the last the, thing you wanted the, to the say? The final
4: bit was there was a huge demo in Helsinki a couple of weeks ago and a 15-year-old a school student addressed it and there was something she said that I thought would take us nicely into our discussion about change the rules. She said to the, uh, to the big demonstration, quote, today we use 100 million barrels of oil every day. There are no politics to change that. There are no rules to keep that oil on the ground. So we can't save the world by playing by the rules because the rules have to change. Everything needs to change and it has to start today. (laughs) Well, there you go. So there's...
2: You know, that's funny. I've just seen seen, uh, Michael Moore's new film, Fahrenheit 11.9, which is a must-watch film. And uh, some of the uh, students from the uh, No Guns group... Well, one of the quotes is the boy saying, um, well, I just want to thank you for effing the world. I mean, yeah, <laughs> but, and and leaving us to do all the heavy lifting, basically. Yeah. I mean, that was a paraphrase, but go on.
4: Well, I just think that it was really a, a quite uh, sharp the way this 15-year-old uh, Swede, Swedish woman, young woman, has articulated the problem with the rules that we need a totally new regime of rules. And that, therefore, winning on climate change means the remaking of the rules and obviously that means uh, peoples and democratic and workers control uh, as part of that whole process. Uh, if we turn therefore to our Change the Rules campaign, which is almost exclusively focused, even though there's a whole network of broken rules in Australia that we haven't got time to go no, into. No,
2: we've got exactly two and a half minutes. Go oh. on
4: is where we want to spend most of the time. Uh, the, the, the big thing is this. The uh, fantastic rallies and a month of action, and, and in the middle of that, sneaking out, the Fair Work Commission announced the timetable for the annual wage review. Now, the annual wage review is a magnificent opportunity to strike a blow against inequality, and the ACTU started to do that with its claim last year and uh so the timetable is now out now what that means is that the the timetable for the consideration of the annual wage review which may or may not strike a blow against inequality coincides with the uh period leading up to the national election (laughs) and includes includes at at least two state elections and of course includes the national conference and the alp now the alp national conference Everything is being done to set it up so there's no controversy.
2: Of course. <laughs> okay. Where's it going and to be at and what? what's the date?
4: And yet there are – well, it's in mid-December. I don't have the exact date in front of me. Yeah. But it's at
2: the, yeah, and it's going to be in Sydney, eight, is it?
4: Something like that. No, it's in Adelaide.
2: Adelaide. So, oh. so See, they, the, they've already set it up for um, no yeah. controversy.
4: Yes, that's right. And that that means that, you know, there's a big effort going on to uh, dilute, if you like, the controversial, so-called controversial aspects of the demands of the Change the Rules campaign. And uh, so far, I think there is a big struggle going on, uh, a lot of it behind closed doors about that issue. Now... We should perhaps spend over the next, therefore, the next two or three sessions talking a bit more about inequality and the national wage case uh, and how the whole thing works and how trickle down economics so thoroughly infects how the Fair Work Commission, it's not a full bench, it's called a, a panel, an expert panel, how it interprets its responsibilities under the Fair Work Act.
2: Anyway, we have to yep. stop there, and uh, you just made them sound like the Voice.
4: <laughs> 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 We've gone. I've gone from the um, the multi syllabic uh, uh, realm in the beginning of the discussion down to uh, the Voice. <laughs> Our
2: Have a good weekend. Thanks for dropping in to Solidarity Breakfast.
4: All the best.
2: And that is the end of Solidarity Breakfast. He always takes us up to the line. Um, (laughs) We we covered a lot of stuff today, Rebecca and and Tilly. What did we have first off? We had uh, the launch of the Freedom for Sale for Justice. We followed it up with Grandmothers Against Detention of Refugee Children. Yes. Followed by Defence Public Housing Rally. And uh, which is on the uh, 9th, Friday the 9th of November, 6pm at uh, the State Library, Be There or Be Square, followed followed up with actually a very tasty discussion about unions and the environment because I don't know about you but I think that's the most frightening thing. Climate change. Climate change. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, we're going to go out with
9: a great song. Dosaina sumande, why we go? koro mandai koro. Dosaina sumande. One day.